Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of October 20th. So for Swoon. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as today we update our view on credit given the move higher in Treasury yields in the past week, and spend the majority of the podcast today talking about the unforeseen two basis point drop in SOFR and what it may mean going forward for the front end and for credit markets. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, then I think the number one market narrative in the week since our last podcast has clearly been the move in Treasury yields, particularly at the front end of the curve, which has been accompanied by another round of flattening in the Treasury yield curve. And from a credit perspective, I guess we really haven't seen much. No, we haven't. We're pretty range-bound in credit still, despite this sell-off in in treasury yields really across the curve. But like you said, led by really rate hike expectations, we're now pricing to about six rate hikes between 2022 and 2024. So pricing in a much more aggressive path for Fed action due largely to the continued high prints in inflation. With respect to credit, like I said, not much going on. We've rallied a few basis points over the past week, mostly on the back of stronger than expected earnings. But credit spread indices right now are really in the middle of this range that we've been in for the better part of the last six months or so. Yeah, we have seen a bit of narrowing. To your point, I think that was pretty much all at the end of last week as earning reports started to roll in. It's really been no movement at all so far this week. And actually what strikes me as most surprising is we haven't really seen any change in the spread curve shape. And I think that's a little surprising in the context of the move in treasury yields. We typically see a positive correlation there. And really spread curves haven't moved at all, despite the flattening in treasuries. It's just been kind of a whole lot of nothing in spread so far. And I think for me, the question is, will that continue? Obviously, you talked about the pull forward of rate hike expectations, and that is definitely not a positive for credit. Also, we've seen break-evens moving higher near the decade-plus long highs here. So looking at deepening inflationary concerns, which also not a good thing for credit and still spreads holding in. I I think a lot of it has to do with earnings from a high level. We only have, what, 10% of earnings reported so far, but some major ones have come in. And, you know, they're good, not great, not a whole lot to be said. You can poke holes in a few of the earnings reports where revenue gains are coming from, things of that nature. But it seems like from a high level, the biggest takeaway from earnings is it's sort of a breath of relief, right? That we could have been a lot worse in Q3 with the proliferation of the Delta variant, and it doesn't seem to have had a major impact, at least so far. So I think that's keeping spreads range bound now at the narrow end of the range. My question is, how long will it continue? 
Yeah. So with respect to earnings, if you look at, for instance, the city economic surprise index, that's about as low as it's been since the onset of the pandemic, which says to me that there was a lot more downside risk with respect to corporate earnings this quarter. So far, that hasn't been realized by and large. And so I think there's a little bit of reason for a slight relief rally. But like you said, earnings, good, not great, not too much to focus on here, at least through just about the 10% of earnings or so that we've seen to this point. So, and maybe we can just leave it here even for this week with spreads unchanged. I don't really see much change to our view that we laid out last week. If you missed last week's episode, I think it's a good one to go back to. We sort of set the foundation for our medium-term view on credit, which suggests that the next significant move in credit will likely be wider to a higher trading range in 2022. Maybe not a significantly higher trading range, but we expect as accommodation from both the fiscal and monetary side wanes here to see credit just sort of drift higher into a little bit wider of a range in 2022. So we still, I think I speak for both of us here, remain in the camp that, you know, taking advantage of risk on days with spreads really only four or five basis points off cyclical lows here. Any, you know, risk on days with spread performance is a good opportunity to maybe sell, take some profits and look forward to reestablishing carry trades toward the end of this year into next year, what we expect will be slightly wider spreads. I mean, are we in a generally in agreement there, Dan? Yeah, I think we're going to continue to trade in this range for the foreseeable future, at least until we get some clarity about the path of inflation and Fed policy. We can maybe leave it there on credit for today and transition to our main topic of the day, which I think was really solidified for us this morning when we got a surprising drop in SOFR. Yesterday's SOFR rate dropped from five basis points to three basis points, as we've all seen now. The first time it's printed below five basis points since June, leaving a lot of market participants to sort of scratch their head at why we saw a full two basis point drop in SOFR today. I'll kick it to you, Dan. What's driving this? So I think there's a couple things we can point to. First, it's important to keep in mind this backdrop that we've had for the better part of the past year, which is that We've had excess supply of cash and a lack of collateral in the front end of the system. This has been due largely to Fed QE and also more recently the debt ceiling, which has reduced the supply of collateral in the repo market. Now, more recently, as we saw this move higher in treasury yields, this has resulted in more treasury securities trading special in repo. Now, for those of you who aren't as familiar with the repo market, when certain treasuries trade special in repo, they're lent at a lower rate than GC or general collateral, which can drag down the average repo rate. Now, SOFR is a volume-weighted median repo rate, which attempts to control for the impact of specials by cutting out the bottom 25% of all transactions. Now, that 25% is probably more than any amount of specials that trades in a given day. But if the amount trading special is more on a given day, it simply drags down the median rate of repo. And that could be partially to blame for this reduction in SOFR. Yeah, I mean, Backing up a little bit here, I think what will likely bear the brunt of the blame for this is likely to be GSC cash. We are now in the quote-unquote float period where GSCs are putting more cash into the front end after they've received mortgage payments from their mortgagees and have yet to send the cash out to the investors. There is a couple-day window here where there's just more cash invented in the front end here from the GSCs. Uh, We are in that window now. That is going to be putting downward pressure on repo. For sure, that's sort of yesterday, really. And that's going to be blamed, and that is likely playing a role here. But I don't think that is the only contributing factor here. In fact, if you look at just SOFR percentiles, seeing where the first or the 25th percentile of SOFR has printed since the beginning of October, we've seen this consistent march downward. It's not just one day GSE cash is in the market heavier than normal and boom, SOFR's three basis points. 
it has been this sort of decline gradually in the past couple of weeks where the headline number stayed at five, but we've seen the underlying metrics exhibiting more evidence of downward pressure. And then you sort of have the 800-pound grill in form of GSE cash kind of jump on the pile, and maybe that's sufficient to push it through five. But it's not just GSE cash. Something else is going on, Dan, and I think you're right that it has to do with the volatility at the front end of the curve. First, you talked about the impact of specials. That certainly makes sense. We're going to see more specials as more collateral is shorted, given the pretty rapid move wider and short end spreads here. And that's going to mathematically pull down the SOFR average rate. And then you know, there's also an argument you made here that there are a lot of counterparties that aren't eligible to park their cash at the Fed via the RRP that maybe are looking for more shelter with the short end of the curve. I mean, if you're a portfolio that's constrained to buying, say, within three years or even five years, and you've seen the incredibly fast repricing at the short end of the curve, you may be looking at just parking your cash and repo, you know, for a day or two here or a week and wait until you see treasury yields stabilize before dipping your toes back in. So we could be seeing just, in addition to the impact of specials, more cash that's ineligibly put at the Fed that's looking for a home in the repo market and driving the rate down that way. So I think you have the confluence of those two factors and then some of the longer-term factors you talked about that has all sort of culminated with the sofa soon, if you will, a bit of a play on words there, the opposite of a sofa spike, to three basis points today. Now, I think we've covered what are likely the drivers of it, Maybe more importantly, though, is what does this mean going forward? I'll start here, Dan. Is this move sustainable? So I think that once this GSE cash leaves the system, we'll probably move back towards the Fed's RRP rate of five basis points. But it is certainly possible that next month when GSE cash re-enters the system, we get some more downward pressure and we trade below the bottom of the range. And I think that's the important thing to take away here is that the Fed's tool of the RRP rate is clearly leaky with respect to SOFR. SOFR can trade below the Fed's RRP rate, which it hasn't done before today. And so that has a lot of implications for money market investors, including those investing in FRN's index to SOFR, which are now receiving a fairly significant rate, three basis points versus five basis points. And it's not totally clear how long this is going to last or whether SOFR can go back down below RRP, assuming it moves back to five basis points in the next few days. Yeah, I'm in broad agreement with you. I think this will likely prove to be an aberration. The floor should hold more often than not. And once that GAC cash is cleaned out and we get some more stability at the front end, you see specials come down, you see people maybe more comfortable moving out the maturity spectrum a little bit. We'll probably be back to five basis points in short order here. So long-term ramifications, like for the Fed, I see basically nothing. I don't think the Fed cares much. The floor is mostly working. And were this to continue somehow for a prolonged period of time, they would just deliver another technical adjustment. I don't think we're anywhere near that now, but they could do that if they needed to. And the Fed's not going to be very concerned with this, I don't think. The longer-term ramifications for me is, like you said, on the investor front. This is just another maybe mark against SOFR here, particularly for FRN investors who five basis points or three basis points doesn't sound like much, but that's 40% of your base rate. And the drivers we talked about, well, we expect it to go back to five in short order here. They are durable to a certain extent. Like, it could be that specials remain elevated and there is still way more demand at the front of the curve to keep repo down here and keep sulfur at three basis points for a period of a couple of weeks. We don't think that's what's going to happen, but it is possible. This isn't just GSE cash. And so if you're an FRN investor and now all of a sudden 
the four from the RRP is maybe more leaky than we thought. And this is a possibility. This is something that could happen that the new rate is so exposed to these technical factors that you could get, you know, like in September of 2019, a big spike or today, uh, unexpected drop beneath the Fed's floor. That's just going to be another criticism of the rate that maybe isn't loved already by FRN investors. So it's something to keep an eye on. But I think, and we can broaden the conversation out here to some more transition-related topics, but I don't know what that means. So there's really not any other option. SOFR is the only rate that is used in FRNs at this point. Yeah, that's right. There were a few FRNs indexed to Bisbee, but that enthusiasm has waned in the past few months, and now it's really just SOFR. Yeah, we had $40 billion in SOFR in September, averaging you know around $30 billion per month now. So for FRNs, maybe there's not much to take away. But as we look forward to the next few weeks and months, like we're entering a very critical period here for LIBOR transition now, where by the end of the year, all financial contracts are scheduled to be moved over off of LIBOR. And we can provide a bit of an update there. I pulled the numbers for a conference just this week. And still, outside of the FRN market, all cash and derivative markets outside of FRNs still utilize LIBOR extremely heavily. We can start just with derivatives. Won't be surprised to anybody, but LIBOR continues to greatly overshadow SOFR. SOFR volumes are like 15 to 20% of LIBOR volumes in derivative space now. And that's up significantly since July when interdealer conventions transitioned from LIBOR to SOFR. And we have another maybe quote-unquote watershed event here coming Friday where the LIBOR screens are now turned off on the interdealer market. So maybe that's another inflection point where we see SOFR volumes picking up again. But still, LIBOR remains the rate of choice in derivative markets, and that's certainly true in cash markets as well outside of FRNs. Looking at loans, still LIBOR is the overwhelming selection for most used right now. We have seen some loans indexed to both Bisbee and SOFR, but I think we're talking about what, like 10 to 15 loans in SOFR and maybe 15 to 20 in Bisbee. With the volumes much larger in SOFR, I think we're at about upwards of 15 billion in SOFR and around five or less in Bisbee. So still extremely low loan production on anything but LIBOR, and that's going to change soon. And so where the conversation from, you know, another potential criticism of SOFR here in this three basis point drop, where that maybe enters into the calculus most is what rate is going to be chosen by loan market participants in the months ahead. Yeah, so I think what's interesting about SOFR loans is the few that have been originated at this point all reference overnight SOFR currently, and that's likely to change just with time. Loan market participants have been instructed to use term SOFR, and given that CME's official term SOFR is a relatively recent development, and the licensing and other factors that need to take place before that can be used more widely are just going to take time. I think that's also likely to change, as you mentioned, in the derivative market. You know, it takes time for these new rates to catch on, but I would expect that in the coming weeks and months, we see a pretty sharp uptake in SOFR products. Yeah, term SOFR is going to be a game changer, but there's not a lot of time left, as you say, and there still is significant interest on the loan side in non-SOFR rates from particularly regional banks down to community banks. SOFR just isn't necessarily a rate that works for them, or they don't think it does, at least not now. And so there is still a lot of interest in Bisbee and Ameribor, even some interest in Prime. And we know that loans are being actively marketed with Bisbee and other non-SOFR rates. And while LIBOR remains the rate of choice, that's going to change soon. And, and we're going to finally start to find out which rate is going to become the de facto rate. And as we've said for a long time now, it's not going to be just one. Probably all of these rates are here to stay now. I can't imagine that any of them are going to go away. 
And it's going to be this market trying to adapt all at once to whatever the loan side decides. And this drop in SOFR, maybe some loan officers that haven't determined what rate they're going to use yet, I can't imagine it helps them move more towards SOFR. You know, so it's still the waiting game. We still don't know anything yet, but we know the derivative side is going to have to quickly adapt to whatever rate is chosen by the cash side. And to that point, Dan, I thought it might be worth a couple minutes here talking about what is a swap spread now that LIBOR swap spreads are sort of on the decline. We're going to be talking about SOFR swap spreads now. And they have entirely different drivers than, you know, the sort of historical factors that we'd look at driving LIBOR swap spreads. We're going to have to start thinking about things in terms of SOFR swap spreads now, at least if and until Bisbee swaps or other rate swaps grow in importance, it's going to be SOFR swaps. And we're going to have to start thinking about what those drivers are. And I know you took a look at this recently for our written work. What did you find? Yeah. So like you mentioned, SOFR swap volumes are currently about 20% of LIBOR swap volumes. And that's increasing pretty rapidly. And we're expecting more of an increase on Friday once this CFTC guidance that interdealer brokers turn off LIBOR screens takes effect. But obviously, because SOFR is a unsecured overnight rate, whereas LIBOR's term and unsecured, the SOFR swap spread curve is entirely below the LIBOR swap spread curve and is actually completely negative. So SOFR swap rate across the curve is lower than a match maturity treasury. So if we're comparing a SOFR swap spread to a LIBOR swap spread, that curve is going to be entirely negative and below the LIBOR swap spread curve. So on one hand, we have a lot of similar factors driving SOFR swap spreads as we do with LIBOR swap spreads. So for instance, the treasury leg of each swap spread is largely the same. Factors like primary dealer positions, foreign demand for treasuries, and other things that impact the costs and demand for holding treasuries are going to be largely the same. But on the other hand, instead of being driven by factors impacting unsecured funding and financial market stress, SOFR swap spreads are driven more by repo rates. So a couple of the factors that we found that are interesting and important in our swap spread model are things like assets in government money market funds. So as government money market funds hold more assets, that represents an influx of cash into the repo system, which drives down repo rates and narrows SOFR swap spreads. We also have similar technical factors that also drive LIBOR swap spreads like hedging demand. And that's only going to increase as SOFR swap volumes continue to increase. So even though SOFR swaps can't be used to hedge credit risk, they're still likely going to be used by asset swappers once LIBOR goes away in order to hedge interest rate risk. And we're seeing that more and more as this year end 2021 deadline approaches. We're expecting another increase in that shortly. Yeah. So a lot to unpack there, Dan, but I think one of the things that stood out to me is who's going to use SOFR swaps. And it's going to be the same people that use LIBOR swaps. We're going to see duration accounts using swaps to get duration depending on its attractiveness versus treasuries. We're going to see asset swappers continue to use SOFR swaps to mitigate interest rate risk, even if it does nothing to mitigate credit risk. And I guess as we wrap up here, that mitigation of credit risk is still a key outstanding question for me as we continue to march towards the end of LIBOR and more importantly, the end of LIBOR in any financial contracts. What is going to be used to hedge credit now? Or is the answer nothing? And if the answer is nothing, are we going to see loan books that benchmark versus SOFR having to build in a bit of a wider spread? If it's Bisbee versus 250, are we going to need SOFR plus 260 to sort of compensate for over the life of that asset, the potential for an increase in cost of funds for a bank? And how is that going to be received by loan 
borrowers? Is it going to drive them towards Bisbee? They see the headline risk we've all talked about now, this sticker shock, if you will, of seeing a higher spread attached to SOFR than would be for another credit sensitive rate. Or are we going to see the market continue to adapt with potentially using CDS? That's been talked about a lot, using credit default swaps as a way to hedge credit risk now. It's hard to believe that's going to be a broad-based solution for many people, just given liquidity and sophistication challenges around the CDX market. It's just something we've talked about for years now, and it doesn't feel to me like there is yet an answer. And now as we get closer to the end of the year, it's still for me one of the biggest wild cards surrounding library transition is what's going to happen without the ability to hedge credit risk in derivative markets. Yeah, Dan, it's really the one aspect of the transition that I think has not been addressed adequately. And surprisingly, it hasn't been talked about as much as I would have thought that it would be, especially now in the fourth quarter of 2021, really on the eve of this mandated move away from LIBOR. It's very surprising to me that we don't have any real solution to this problem. Yeah, we saw the enthusiasm for Bisbee really fall off a cliff alongside, well, two things really. First, the regulators came out pretty sharply with criticism of it all on that coordinated day in the summer. But also we got term SOFR, and that seemed to really quiet a lot of the drumbeat for Bisbee or other credit-sensitive rates. Now we at least have a term rate. We can deal with it. But there's still no answer to the credit spread problem. And I guess what I'm talking about here is the problem without potential solutions. But that is just how unknown it is now. And it could have real ramifications that we're not adequately seeing now because it's hard to even handicap what the impact of that is going to be. So I guess this is just another conversation about LIBOR reform. We've certainly talked about it a lot in this podcast in months and years past. It's been a while because there's not much new to report as we continue to wait to see what direction the loan side goes and how derivative markets develop. But we're really on the eve of it, like you said, and there's still very significant outstanding questions that we're going to find out the answer to, for better or for worse, here within the next few months. And with that, Dan, I don't have much else to talk about today. Do you have anything else before we sign off? No, I think that covers it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. 
FEMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.